0: of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake.christitychurch.ca.
1: Today's scripture comes from Jonah 4, 1-11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. You may be seated.
0: And as you're being seated, I just want to welcome you. My name's also Jake. Uh, Good to be with you this morning. A few just announcements to add before we pray and prepare our hearts to receive God's word. The first is I want to double down on what Jacob said about worship and prayer this Wednesday. Uh, You've heard it said before from the front, and you'll hear it again until we die, Uh, nothing of significance happens in this church outside of us prayerfully seeking the Lord in it. Uh, We are incapable in and of ourselves of affecting the kind of change we want to affect in this neighborhood uh, with our charisma, with our programs, with our skills. We're unable to do it. We have to seek the Lord. And so I'd encourage you, if you call Christ City home or if you've just shown up today for the first time, come on Wednesday and we're going to sing and pray together. Uh, There'll be structure to it, so it's not like intimidating. Uh, There'll be some structure to it. So please come and join us on Wednesday at 6.30 downstairs for prayer. The second thing is this. I just met with our kids team this morning. uh, And it turns out we are in desperate need of kids ministry teachers. Uh, Like, So there's like our regular level of need, which is always high. You've seen the kids that are here. And sort of here's where we're at now. Uh, where people are serving two, even three times a month. And that's just not sustainable as a church. And so if this is your church, this is your home. If you want to teach the Word of God, if you want to learn to teach the Word of God, uh, you can email me, jake at at Church.ca. We really need you. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, it seems the theme this morning is our desperate need of you. that we are unable, incapable, on our own, by ourselves to do anything of real significance. And so we ask that in your grace and in your mercy, you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We'd have eyes to see what you're showing us in your word and ears to hear what you're speaking to us through your word. But Lord, would we have, perhaps most importantly, feet to obey what you're calling us to do so we thank you, Jesus. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for your blood applied, which welcomes us into relationship with you this morning, that we might obey and live the life you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you are just joining us this morning, we've been going through the book of, of Jonah. And again, if, you, if you're new or you've missed a few Weeks here. Again, welcome. We're so glad you're here. But you might be excused in thinking that something terrible has just happened in this book. That some atrocious thing has just taken place. Our text began this morning, and Tom read for us. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Has something terrible just happened? Have all Jonah's stocks just, like, taken a dive Has he experienced some great personal or familial tragedy? No, what's what's taken place? Jonah's great displeasure, his exceeding displeasure, comes on the heels of God sparing 120,000 Ninevite lives. And it made Jonah, in common parlance, super mad. I think it is fair to say that Jonah's reaction to God's great mercy in this book is curious at best, interesting at least. But for those of us who've been traveling all the while in this series, Jonah's response should not be entirely surprising to us. Jonah is a man with an agenda. Jonah has deep-seated beliefs about who God is, how God should act, what God should do, and who God specifically is towards God's people. But at every turn, Jonah finds there is this incongruity between the God he has built for himself and God as he truly is. The author of the book of Jonah has gone to great lengths to show us that Jonah is an idolater, a man who prefers to worship a God of his making than the God who truly is. But if we can remember back, to the very first sermon in this series, the point of this little book about Jonah is that you and I would see the ways in which we are just like Jonah. Our hearts just like his. Not that we would just point and laugh at this petty prophet in this little book in the Bible, but that we, we would be exposed as well. Our hearts exposed as well. See, idolatry, to be sure, is not just the drug of choice for pagans. Or for practitioners of Eastern religions, idolatry is the inclination of all of our hearts. Elise Fitzpatrick, she's an author, she says this, Idols aren't just stone statues. No, they are loves and thoughts and desires and longings and expectations that we worship in place of the true God. They are the things we invest our identity in. They are what we trust. And idols cause us to disregard our Heavenly Father in search of what we, key word, think we need. And where idolatry becomes supremely dangerous. We all know the explicit idolatry of worshipping money and worshipping power and worshipping sex. But the, the, the more dangerous idolatry, perhaps, where it becomes supremely dangerous is when these loves and thoughts and desires and longings and expectations are transposed onto God. And God is like this. It's then when our idolatry is sanctioned under the banner of God's will that we are in most perilous danger. And nothing short of divine intervention is able to save us. This morning I want to see two things. Two things very simply in our text that we have before us. First, how idolatry shapes us. And second, how God shapes us. And so Bible's open to Jonah 4. First... How idolatry shapes us, or forms us, or conforms us. See, Jonah's idolatry of nation and people group, this is well-worn territory in our series so far, have caused what he loves to be at odds against what God loves and what God cares about, what God's priorities are. See, idolatry shapes our hearts, our desires. And so look with me at verse 1. Again, in response to Nineveh's repentance, it says, But it, God's mercy, God's subsequent relenting of disaster, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And so Jonah goes out of the city, it says, East. Of the city. And by the way, anytime it says like someone's going east in the Bible, more or less, that's like a bad movement. That's a movement away from God, away from obedience, away from God's will for their lives. He goes east of the city, it says. He sits down, and it says in verse 5, He sat under this booth he had made in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Jonah watches, and he waits, and perhaps God will change his mind back to destruction mode and wipe out the Ninevites. It's while Jonah is hoping against hope that God changes his mind and wipes them out, that in his kindness, God, look at verse 6, appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah, listen to this, was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So do you see that? Jonah was exceedingly happy, overjoyed, thrilled because of the plants. This phrase is meant to stand in contrast to Jonah's exceeding displeasure at the repentance of Nineveh. He's very happy about the plants, and he's very sad about this repentance. In the words of one commentator, Jonah... Is as glad about a little more shade for his head as he was enraged when God's mercy disappointed his hope that Nineveh would be destroyed. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous to value a plant more than 120,000 people, their lives, a whole city, a whole civilization, is ridiculous. It's silly. But idolatry makes us ridiculous. Idolatry makes our loves ridiculous. Idolatry makes us weep over plants and makes us cold towards people. The ridiculousness of Jonah's response is made all the clearer when we realize that Jonah is being very intentionally contrasted with another prophet, with the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. So in 1 Kings 19, very quickly, here's the story. Uh, Elijah has this showdown with these prophets of Baal atop of a mountain, and it ends with basically them being destroyed and God being exalted as the one true God. It's this glorious, literal, mountaintop moment. It's beautiful and fantastic and, 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 and good in all the best ways. And then Elijah goes, he comes down from the mountain, and he realizes that Israel, nonetheless, Particularly King Ahab and his wicked wife Jezebel remain unrepentant. Their hearts remain half-hearted in their devotion to Yahweh. And so it says in 1 Kings 19 It's for that reason then that Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down, does this sound familiar? Under a broom tree. And he asked, Does this sound familiar that he might die? saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Elijah, like Jonah, is a distraught prophet heading into the wilderness. Elijah, like Jonah, finds himself seeking shade under a plant. And Elijah, like Jonah, wishes he would die. But unlike Jonah, Elijah does all these things in response to Israel's failure to repent where Jonah does them because Nineveh repented. It's ridiculous. In, in what ways, here's the question for us then, in what ways has our idolatry made our desires ridiculous? Ridiculous. And if you don't know, asking yourself what makes you angry, enraged, exceedingly displeased, is a good way to find out. Do you respond in a rage when that package is not delivered on time? Amazon promised. But you remain just generally unmoved by systemic injustices that oppress one group to the advantage of another. Are you, parents, irrationally angry when your kid gets up to grab a cup of water or go to the bathroom for the millionth time? You don't have to go. Forcing you to pause your show or your movie again? And are you generally apathetic to the pain of your neighbor? How about once a year? Do you need to, to fake excitement during the baptism videos, right? Woo! While excitement naturally boils over, naturally bubbles up in response to the thought of a promotion at work or a bonus. It's ridiculous. Is singing songs to the Lord who saved your soul boring to you? Would you much rather be belting the songs of your favorite artists at Rogers Arena? Idolatry makes our hearts ridiculous. It makes us people who desire the wrong things in the wrong proportions. It's no wonder verse 4 reads, And the Lord said, so it's kind of a funny point. There's funny points in the book of Jonah. It's kind of funny. Do you do well to be angry? And it's a rhetorical question. <laughs> no, is the answer. No, Jonah, you don't do well to be angry. Your, your heart is all out of whack. You don't do well to be angry at this, Jonah. You've missed the plot, Jonah. What right do you have to be angry at my mercy, Jonah. And a little later, after God has sent the plant, and then sent a worm to literally attack the plant, it says, again God asks, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah says, and you can you can can, like hear the toddler in him. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die, and, and pounding his fist on the table. And Jonah's idolatry has shaped his heart. But see this: the heart and the head must work in concert. Human beings don't do well as fractured or duplicitous people. Occasionally, we rationalize a desire and then ask our heart to keep in step, but more frequently, we desire something and then create the accompanying framework and justification in our minds. See, inevitably, yes, idolatry shapes our hearts, but also idolatry shapes our theology. Idolatry shapes what we believe about God. What we profess with our mouth, who who God to be. Look at Jonah's second prayer in this book with me. And ironically, Jonah's first prayer in this book, he commends God for his great mercy. But in his second prayer in this book, he takes issue with God's mercy. Look at verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Right? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Finally, we get a window into the conversation between Jonah and God at his initial commissioning. Why did Jonah make haste to Tarshish? Because of who he believed God to be. And Jonah quotes as a good prophet steep in the scriptures from a famous passage in Exodus 34. Let me read it to you. But let me read it to you not as Jonah quoted it, but as it actually is. See if you pick up on anything strange. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. He, here's the Lord's self-disclosure at Sinai with Moses, with Israel. It says this says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. Like most bad theology, Jonah is partly right. He quotes back to God, part of his divine character. But but do you see the bit that Jonah left out? Verse 7, Exodus 34 but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Jonah leaves it out. He he doesn't quote that back to God. Not only does he leave that bit out, but he also adds a little bit of his own. He ends his statement by saying, and God, this God, is relenting from disaster. See, to Jonah, a God who would send a prophet to Ninevites, must be all mercy and no justice, must be all grace and no consequences. If God does not wipe out Israel's historical enemies, if he shows grace to them, Jonah believes, then surely he's a God of unbalanced scales. Jonah's idolatry shapes Jonah's theology. Do you see that? And if Jonah's like us, You know the question that's coming. In what ways has our idolatry shaped our theology? Maybe you have uh, siblings that you love or fear more than you love or fear the Lord. And they've made some life choices that the Bible calls sin. Choices the Bible says, if not repented of, will lead to eternal judgment. So what do you do? What do you do? You could tell them what the Bible says. You could, if they wish, continued in this changed relationship, perhaps now awkward or stilted relationship. Or you could just change your theology. You could just change what you believe about God. You could just ignore or overlook those passages which clearly teach you the opposite. You could, like Jonah... Adopt a theology where God is all mercy and all loving and not holy and not our creator and designer and the one who knows what's best for us. Our idolatry shapes our theology. How about this? Maybe there is a particular political party with accompanying policies that you have been shaped by more than the gospel and you love them. You love them. You find yourself at parties conflating the political agenda with God's kingdom. And you avoid Jesus' teaching on compassion and mercy or the example of the early church because it sounds too socialist to you. You've placed a heavy emphasis on the individual disciplines, the individual responsibilities, but you are less clear about your corporate commitments to the church body or to the wider city. Your idolatry has shaped your theology. And when idolatrous desires give way to idolatrous theology, there is only one inevitable ending place. The road only leads to to, to one place, and it's despair. It's despair. I want to die. We we come now to the fundamental problem of idolatry, the fundamental problem. Idolatry causes us to put our hopes in in that which is not real. So in in 1 John, for example, the the Apostle John ends his letter with with this exhortation to the community there. He says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. So this word idols can, yes, refer to to an image or a likeness or a statue, but it can also more generally refer to something that is not real. Or phantom-like. Something you can't grasp. It's false, unreal. And so to paraphrase the words of Jesus, idols shout to us. They, They seduce us by saying, build your life on me. I'm solid ground. It's secure here. It's safe here. Right? And then the rain comes. And the flood comes. And we discover that we've been lied to, that our foundation is in fact sand, and it all comes crashing down. And so we, like Jonah, despair. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. All that I've been going towards this whole time, the, the whole aim and trajectory of my life is now meaningless, as Jonah saying. Again in verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. The storm, scorching winds and blazing heat will always reveal our deepest desires. It will always reveal where we've built our homes. And the same is true here. Jonah is saying, if God would spare the Ninevites, my life is not worth living. And more than that, if God would behave that way towards me, a respectable, upstanding Hebrew prophet, life's not worth living. Jonah built his life on the illusion that God owes him and his people nothing but blessing, and those who are not like him nothing but judgment. And it's all come crashing down. And maybe you're in that place this morning. It's a painful place. We, we saw that place in Jonah chapter 2, didn't we? It's a painful place. It feels like death. It feels like the grave. But for the first time you're realizing that the God in whom you trust looks a little like the God of the Bible and a lot like one that conforms to your wishes and your desires and your wants. It sounds like you. It speaks to you. Could it, in fact, be you? And maybe you're seeing for the first time that your despair, if not entirely, at least partially, is due to your faulty foundations. Does the book of Jonah have any good news for us? Does it have any good news for us? Did you hear how it ended? Tom read it. It sounded ridiculous. There's a remark about cows. I mean, I'm not a very good writer. I'm an okay writer, but I would have chosen a different, maybe like a little flourish at the end, right? Maybe something uplifting or upbuilding or even concrete, but instead we have what? We have cows. We're going to look more at the cows next week. The book of Jonah ends so abruptly. We don't know what happened to Jonah. We don't know if he experienced a change of heart. And and we don't know if he ever truly repented the way those sailors did in chapter 1. Though in a bit, I think we get a hint at what happened to Jonah. But in invoking Exodus 34 at the close of the book, perhaps the author is inviting us to consider the broader context in which God's self-disclosure came. So, So go with me to point number two. Here's point number two, how God shapes and forms us. If you have your Bible, leave Jonah for a second. Go all the way to Exodus. Go all the way to Exodus. We're going to go to Exodus chapter 32. So in Exodus 34, the Lord shares his character with Moses, right, in the context of giving him these new tablets containing the ten words or the ten commandments, right? Now, you may be wondering, well, why does he have new tablets? What was wrong with the first tablets? Great question. If you don't know the story, Moses came down from the mountain previously. He came down to find that the people had built from their gold earrings a gold statue, an idol, and they were worshiping and dancing and frolicking before this idol. It was a glorious time of play, Exodus 32 says. And just like with Jonah... In worshiping the idol, the people have begun to look like the idol. See, not only in Exodus and not only in Jonah, but in the Psalms and throughout the Bible, you find this simple truth that we've been looking at kind of going around so far. It's this. Pastor, author Andrew Wilson, he says this. He says, we shape idols, and then idols shape us. So, these people who have begun to worship in Exodus 32, a stiff-necked statue are described in verse 9 by the Lord as a stiff-necked people. We shape idols, and then idols shape us. you see that? There's great irony in the fact that having made this idol with their melted-down gold earrings, their earring God has made them deaf to the Lord's voice, dumb to his way. It's a tragic picture. But Israel are not the only people who are being shaped in Exodus 32. What's remarkable about this chapter is that in Exodus 32, we find that Moses, having spent prolonged time with the Lord up on the mountain, has begun to act and think and feel as God does. So for example, in verse 10, It says that the Lord's anger burned hot against his people. And then in verse 19, as Moses descends the mountain, lo and behold, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger also burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. Where Jonah is angry about the wrong things, his idolatry having so twisted his heart, Moses, as he worshipped the Lord, learned to be righteously angry for the things that made the Lord angry. A little later on, because Moses implored the Lord to act mercifully, the book of Exodus, using a phrase we find in the book of Jonah as well, tells us, verse 14, And the Lord, in his mercy, relented from the disaster that he had spoken to his people. Likewise, towards the end of Exodus 32, 32, Moses, for all his burning hot anger, in his intercession for the people, he even offers that if it possible, he be blotted out of God's book if it meant the salvation of these people. Moses, like God, has become astonishingly merciful, gracious, all of this, again, leads Andrew Wilson, that same pastor, to remark, by the way, in a great sermon on Exodus 32, which I can send to you if you'd like, he says, the bad news is that we become like what we worship. And then he says this, and it's so, it's so funny. The good news is that we become like what we worship. The bad news is that we become like what we worship. But the good news is that we become like what we worship. God shapes us through worship. He shapes us through prolonged, undistracted, even Wednesday night, time in worship and prayer, time in his presence, reading his word, gathering and praying with his people, crying out to him in our distress. See, see the tragedy, and and Jonah in, in many ways is a tragedy, the tragedy is that in Jonah's angry tantrum, His anger began not when he was first commissioned, but long before. It was the byproduct of a life and ministry shaped not by the presence and worship of Yahweh, but by deep-seated idolatry. And it's all so bleak and hopeless. Who can change their ways after all this? Having lived a whole life going this way, doing these things, can anybody change? Next week will be our last week in our series in Jonah. There we're going to zoom out, make sure we see the forest instead of just the trees, get some handholds as we leave this book. But today is our last Sunday unpacking Jonah as a person. As a person. We've seen Jonah over these past few weeks and all his ugliness. But it would be wrong to end this morning on a hopeless note. And here's why. Have you ever thought about how we got the book of Jonah. Have you ever thought about that? What sort of prophet would tell a story that's so embarrassing, so humiliating? Like it talks about him being vomited out of a whale, right? For millennia, people have read that about this man. Well, in the words of the late Tim Keller, let me read this to you. The only way we could possibly know these things is if Jonah told others. And what kind of man would let the world see what a fool he was? Only someone who has become joyfully secure in God's love. Only someone who believed that he was simultaneously sinful but completely accepted. In short, someone who has found the gospel of grace, the very power of God. If it can change Jonah it can change anyone. It can change you. God shapes us through worship because God shapes us through his relentless and never-ending and never-giving up grace. And though the destructive force of idolatry is real, God's grace is more real And this book is full of examples of idolater after idolater after idolater after idolater. Angry, petulant, despairing people who encountered the glory of God and were forever changed. Not only this book, but this church is full of idolatrous people. An idolatrous pastor who encountered the glory of God. God's grace and his mercy and are because of what he's done forever changed. God shapes us not primarily by giving us a list of do's and don'ts but by giving us himself. He comes and he makes residence in our heart the church and as we yield to the person of Jesus as we trust in his work on the cross for our salvation, in his work in his resurrection, for our life, in his work in his ascension, praying for us even now before the Father, as we trust in Jesus, we find that bit by bit, day by day, moment by moment, we are suddenly and slowly changed, transformed, renewed. We find our thoughts and desires, longings and expectations are not so ridiculous anymore. They are right in step with God's. Jonah has spent four chapters running. I don't know how long you've spent running, but Jonah has spent four chapters running. Down, 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 east, east, east. He has inhabited the whole spectrum of inhospitable lands, from the belly of the fish to now this dry and arid desert. He spent four chapters running. And is that too far for God? Christ said, Do you know the answer? No, it's not. As we close, hear the words of the Lord in the mouth of Jonah, but not as complaints or lament as Jonah intended but as a glorious window into God's character to you and to us. Would you receive these words? For I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told of the older brother and the younger prodigal son. We can see those two characters in our story clearly. In Jonah, we see the self-righteous older brother. In Nineveh, we see the explicit and obvious sin of the younger prodigal son. And Lord, we recognize that oftentimes in ourselves, we are both. But we thank you that this morning... Your grace is not limited to to, to just the explicitly and overtly and defiantly rebellious. But for us who have more quietly, perhaps more dangerously, established in our own hearts our own little throne, and so we sit in self-righteous judgment. Would you see, would we see, would we see, Lord, that your mercy and your grace is for both? That we're all in need however long we followed you, however we've come this morning, in need of the grace and mercy of Jesus. Would you help us to worship you, that our hearts would be changed, our desires transformed? Would we, Lord, conform our lives to you, not you to our lives? Help us, Jesus. Help us, help us, help us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.